0: grab our Bibles and find Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Find the middle of your Bible, turn to the right, you run into Acts. Listen to our verses, Acts 7, Acts 18. Uh, We're going to read, I'm going to read through verse 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. We want our leaders to be strong. We want our leaders strong. As I mentioned in my prayer, the the Democratic National Convention took place last week, and everyone wanted to hear how Joe Biden would sound in his acceptance speech. Would he communicate determination and resolve? Would his tone be tough and clear would he be able to prove both his strength and uh, the requisite stamina and clarity to run the United States of America? Whether it's politics or the boardroom, the operating room, the pulpit, we want our leaders to showcase a steely resolve that helps us believe that everything is going to be all right. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? He was the undisputed leader of the first century church. We know him as the Paul of Romans, zealous for truth and unwilling to build on another man's foundation. We know him as the Paul of Galatians, devoted to the gospel and willing to call out Peter to the carpet for discriminating against Gentile Christians. Christians. We know him as the Paul of Second Timothy, imprisoned for his faith and willing to pour out his life as a drink offering. And so we tend to think of Paul as part man and part lion. And honestly, maybe a little more lion than man. But if you read the account of, of Paul's life in Acts, and if you read all of his New Testament letters, a slightly different picture emerges. We find a humble man, a man honest about his weaknesses, a man able to open up his heart wide to others, a man able to share his life with other people, a man who works very hard for Christ but knows it is all worthless unless Christ is working through him and working in him. And so we make Paul out, and maybe you don't do this, but I think a lot of us do this. We sort of make Paul out to be the the Iron Man of the Bible. But the historical fact is that Paul was simply a sinner dependent upon the Lord to guide and to protect him. That's the Paul of Acts. That's the Paul of the Bible. And in that sense, Paul is just like us. We are tempted to find security, to find our hope and our accomplishments, whether it's our education, our job, our capital, our friends, our kids, you name it. But when we strip all of that away, and you all know that, that, that time will do that. <laughs> time is going to strip all of that away. I don't know if you disengage when we sing the hymns. Occasionally I do, don't tell anybody that. But when I'm paying attention, I'm thinking about what I'm singing. And in that last hymn, I was thinking about my tongue being dead in the grave. I'm thinking one day that's going to be me. And then I just realized, but my tongue is going to be singing God's praises like it's never sung them before. We're just sinners dependent on the Lord to guide us and to protect us. And, and that is the message of Acts 18, 1 through 17. So today, as we walk through our passage, we're going to start by looking at Paul and uh, spend three points on him. And then we're going to turn our attention to God in the fourth and final point. So if you are a note taker and you like to know where we're going, here are the four points. First, Paul's commitment. Paul's commitment. Second, Paul's change. Paul's change. Third, Paul's charge, Paul's charge, and fourth, God's kindness, God's kindness. So each point does not begin with a C. All right, first, Paul's commitment. Let's give you what again at Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul didn't stay long in Athens, where we were last week, And in Athens, he saw only a handful of converts. He moved quickly to the much, much larger city of Corinth. With its two ports, not one port, but two ports, Corinth was a major destination for traders. It was a commercial capital of the world. Like Athens, it was also a hub of idolatry. It had a gigantic temple to Aphrodite. And uh, milling around the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, would have been hundreds of prostitutes. So if you wanted just a a quick vision of of Corinth, think Wall Street and the red-light district of Amsterdam put together. They needed Christ. Paul brings Christ. Paul brings the gospel. And we see his commitment. Paul's commitment in a number of ways in these first few verses. So, for example, take the fact that, once again, Paul is alone. He's alone. He's by himself. Silas and Timothy are not yet with him. And yet Paul appears unfazed. He strikes out on his own to bear witness to Christ in the Jewish community, where he tells them that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And whatever their reaction is going to be, Paul alone brings them this good news. We also see Paul's commitment in the fact that in Corinth he started working for a living, uh, making tents to provide for himself. Paul, news alert, Paul needed money to live. He must have run out of money in Athens or very early on in Corinth. And in God's providence, he ran into, he met, he heard about Aquila, And his wife Priscilla and they probably became Christians in Rome Luke says they had to leave Rome because the Emperor Claudius had issued a decree that the Jews had to evacuate the city historians think that Claudius caught wind of some controversy which in his mind would have been between Jews and Jews but to our mind was between Jews and Christians Claudius, not really digging into what exactly is going on, won the controversy out of Rome, so he expelled all the Jews. In any event, Aquila and Priscilla, that's uh, the the, the common way, the, the, the less formal way of saying her name, sometimes she's Prissa. Anyway, Aquila and Priscilla, they have a small business making tents, working with leather. Paul had learned this trade before he became a Christian, when he was a rabbi, because the tradition in the Jewish community in Judaism was that rabbis uh, uh, earned a living through an occupation that they uh, took on. So Paul had this occupation prior to becoming a Christian, and uh, he, having found Achilla and Priscilla, In God's providence, not only are they believers, but they know how to do the work that Paul is trained to do. So he he begins to work with them uh, during the week, making money to provide for himself, because again, apostles need to eat. And then on the Sabbath, on Saturday, he would do what he normally did in all the cities that he visited. He would go to the synagogue and he would begin making an apology for, that is, arguing for the truthfulness of the Christian interpretation of the Jewish scriptures. So Paul went to Corinth alone. Paul went to work in Corinth, but we also see his commitment in the fact that he returned to the synagogue. So those of you who have been traversing Acts with us uh, through the past few years as we've been coming in and out out of Acts, you know that evangelism for Paul in the synagogue was not safe. Okay? Evangelism for Aaron in the Baptist meeting house, safe. Evangelism for Paul in the Jewish synagogue, not safe. Paul goes anyway. Here he is once again, opening his mouth for the sake of Christ in a place that is not safe. So even though Paul's circumstances were far from ideal, he remains committed to the task of sharing the gospel He lives a life of radical commitment to the Lord, even when his circumstances, having to work, being alone, uh, being in a dangerous place, are really, really hard. And that's worth us thinking about for just a moment. This past few weeks, we've seen several members of Mount Vernon get married. And I think each of those weddings have included vows... And you know the words, for better or for worse, for sicker, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, and not like for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, like till death us do part. Those vows are communicating that a couple is committed regardless Of how trying their life together becomes now marriage is but a dim reflection of christ's own personal commitment to his people christ had every reason to abandon his mission to save us every human reason he endured scorn he endured beatings he endured the cross of rome he endured the wrath of god never giving up on his father who sent him or on his people whom he loved so dearly. Jesus remained committed. He remained faithful to death. When we commit ourselves to working for the Lord, whether that be the work of sharing the gospel, which is a work that we should all, every Christian should be involved in, whether that's the work of the the pastoral ministry that elders and, and pastors uniquely have, whether it's the work of church ministry that every church member has, whether it's the work of simply being faithful to your boss in the face of the project that he just gave you over Zoom, in all those examples, we are reflecting when we are faithful we are reflecting the commitment of the Lord himself. I recognize I said these first three points were about Paul. It's not entirely true. Paul was faithful because the Lord was faithful to him. Paul was committed because not only did he have an example of commitment in Jesus Christ, but through the commitment of Jesus Christ, Paul was saved and filled by the power of the Holy Spirit with steadfastness, the type of resolve that he needed to go alone to Corinth, get a job, and spend his Saturdays in a place where he could very easily get hurt. And that was the first point, Paul's commitment. Now, second, we look at Paul's change. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the corinthians hearing paul believed and were baptized so in verse like, great news in verse 5 silas and timothy come back i mean what a great day that must have been right we know from second corinthians chapter 11 that not only did they bring themselves but they brought money they brought support from churches in macedonia And so with this support, now Paul is able to spend less time making tents and more time devoted to missions work in Corinth, because later on he will tell the Corinthians that he didn't take money from them, but he was supported by other churches in other areas. So Paul devotes himself into synagogue ministry, but he hits a brick wall. Eventually, it was like one sermon, too many. The synagogue members, they get upset. They want him gone. Verse 6 says they opposed him and reviled him. They were against him. They didn't want him there. They wanted him out of their house. Have you ever been reviled by someone for the simple fact of telling the truth? I'm seeing some heads nod. It's not... It's not pleasant. I mean, it's one thing to be reviled by someone when, like, you kind of know you deserve it. In the back of your mind, you recognize, yeah, this is bad, but you know, this is what I get. But when you really are, in a godly way, telling the truth, and yet you are reviled, well, this is, this is what finally happened to Paul as he was preaching in the synagogue. And, and it happened really wherever Paul went. But notice here how Paul responds. <clears throat> it says in verse 6, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Okay? So, after faithfully preaching the gospel in the synagogue in Corinth, Paul now changes. He changes his focus and he's now going to target Gentiles in Corinth. So, he sets up shop conveniently. There's a Gentile background believer whose home is right next to the synagogue. His name is Titius Justice. And then, and I don't have a I'm not going to talk about this, but I just find it ironic that the first convert mentioned after he says he's going to go to the Gentiles is the Jewish ruler of the synagogue, a man whose name is Crispus. Again, if you're having a boy, why not Crispus? Okay. Many come to faith, right? Many are coming to faith. Now, let's go back to Paul's statement. He says, I am innocent. I am innocent. Now, the background of what's going on in verse 6 is really important. So, the Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, was identified in Ezekiel chapter 33 as a watchman. Now, what what did a watchman in the ancient world do? Well, a watchman had the job of standing on top of the city gate, and uh, holding on to his trumpet. And when the invading army would come and was about to destroy, you know, the city, the watchman would would blow the trumpet and warn the people that danger awaits them. So they better get ready. They better do everything they can to to make war or to flee because one way or another, uh, an invading army is about to conquer and destroy them. Well, in, in Ezekiel, and if you remember Ezekiel from last year, in Ezekiel, the invading army is really God. I mean, Ezekiel is the watchman sent to Israel to warn Israel about God himself. And so he's to blow the trumpet and let them know, whoa, God is coming. You guys have been ridiculous. You've been sinful. You've been rebellious. And so wake up. And so Ezekiel the watchman blows the trumpet, calling the people to repent and believe. Now, in Ezekiel 33, an obvious point is made. If the watchman is faithful to do his job, to blow the trumpet, and the people plug their ears, or the people say, well, I don't believe the message that you're blowing. If the people refuse to pay heed to the watchman, well, the blood is on their own head. He did everything he could do. But in Ezekiel 33, it also says that if the watchman fails to blow the trumpet, if he is asleep on the job, if he thinks that's just a mirage, it's not a real army, and he doesn't signal the impending danger, then the people's blood is on his own head. Now, we find a similar idea in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends his apostles throughout the countryside to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, whatever they were proclaiming exactly, we know that it was a message in... In, in keeping with the message of John the Baptist, that people needed to repent. They needed to turn to God. They needed to put their faith in God. So the, 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 the apostles are sent by Jesus to go and, and, and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, if they are not welcomed, if they're not well-received by a, a house here or a town there, Jesus says they are to, to turn around and shake the dust off from their feet. And that act of shaking the dust from their feet is a way for the apostle to say, hey, I've been faithful. I've heeded my master's command. I've warned you that the kingdom of God is at hand and it's time now to repent and believe. You have rejected my exhortation. Your blood is on your own head. It's not on mine. And so it was in Corinth as it had been in in other encounters that that Paul had with Jewish audiences during his apostolic missionary journeys. The synagogue rejected Paul's preaching about Jesus Christ. Their blood is on their heads. Now, let's come back to 2020 for a moment. Today, the church in general, and, and Christian leaders in particular, bear a unique responsibility to warn others about the coming judgment. If we don't sound the alarm that God will judge us for our sins, we are, in some sense, not innocent of the blood of others. And what that means for us as a church is that we must keep our foot on the gas pedal of evangelism. An apostolic church, and that's what we were aiming to be at Mount Vernon. We want to to be an apostolic church. There are no apostles today, but there are apostolic churches. Every true church is an apostolic church. It's a church whose teaching is in line with the message of the apostles that we find in the Word of God. A church in line with the apostolic teaching found in Scripture will be like Ezekiel, the watchman. So there's a sense in which I, as a pastor here, needs to be the watchman. And there's a sense in which you, the priesthood of believers, the congregation, you too need to be the watchman. You need to sound the alarm in Atlanta. And wherever God calls you to make him known, wherever God calls us to make him known. So just a very practical example, in an extraordinary series of events, God has opened a door for Jesse Brannon and Delane Brannon and their children to move to Fujairah or Fujairah. I always forget which. It is hot there, so hot. Hotter than Atlanta hot. We know of not one other established evangelical church in Fujairah than Emmanuel Church, right? Okay. I'm not good with numbers, but 250 to 300,000 people that seems like a lot of people to me. That's the number of people who simply will not run into a Christian. They're not going to hear Christian music at Chick-fil-A no chick-fil-a in the uae i'm sure they're working on it but it's not there yet god has opened a door now for uh, uh, just one local baptist church in in america and i'm sure there will be many churches partnering with jesse uh, the, the question is what does that have to do with us and i would say god has opened a door and their blood will be on our heads if we do not avail ourselves of this incredible opportunity to go. Now, Jesse, that's not my way of saying you have to accept their call. Not exactly what I'm saying, but to the extent that God is sending you there, and the extent that you are us, God has opened a door, and so we want to be faithful to the Lord and take some responsibility for the souls of our fellow human beings, our fellow image bearers in the UAE. But faithfulness to this idea is about more than supporting a pastor and his family to move overseas to share the gospel. We all as Christians bear some responsibility for warning others about the coming judgment. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that you should buy a bullhorn and go to Roswell and Hammond and start sharing the good news. I said it does not necessarily mean that. It does mean, but here's what it most assuredly means, that you must examine the relationships that God has given you. And have you gotten to the point where, or are you close to getting to the point where, or do you have a game plan for how you are going to get to the point where you can affirm that you have said to each one of these individuals what needs to be said about the coming king. You You want to know, you want them to know that God made them, that they have fallen short of his goodness and his glory. You want them to know that we all deserve death and eternal judgment for our sin. This isn't a a they're bad and we're good sort of thing. This is, hey, we're all bad. We all deserve death and judgment. We're all accountable. You want them to know that Christ is the only way. Only he lived a perfect life. Only he, God the Son incarnate, is even capable of dying in the place of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him. He's the only way. His cross is the only way. We need to avoid sort of vapid, generalized expressions of faith. Believe in God. Trust in Jesus. Who knows what comes to people's mind when they hear words like that? They need to know that Christ's atoning death is the only way that we can ever enjoy everlasting life with the Lord. You want them to know that he rose from the dead, that he's the resurrected king, that he's alive. You want them to know that we will all stand and give an account of our lives before Him, and you want them to know that they need to repent and believe. There is something they must do. They must change. They must repent and believe the good news of the gospel. So last week, I talked about motives for evangelism. And I pointed out, because I was so helped by the reminder that the best motivation for evangelism is zeal for God's glory. I want to be so excited about everyone acknowledging that Jesus is King, that I can't help but strive to move conversations to Jesus Christ. But to say that a zeal for God's glory is the best motivation for evangelism is not to say that it's the only motivation for evangelism. Because in some sense, Paul seems to have preached the gospel recognizing that he had a responsibility before the Lord to gain innocence, not a salvific innocence, not so we can go to heaven, but to be innocent of other people's blood. That is a motivation for evangelism. Blood will be on our heads if we fail to share the gospel with the people God has placed in our lives. I know that's such a weighty thing to say. I know that. And and if you ask, well, what exactly, Aaron, does that mean? Does it mean I'm going to go to hell if I don't share the gospel with my friend? I don't know exactly what it means. I don't know exactly how God is going to judge, but I simply need to humble myself under God's word and say there's a sense in which we are called to be stewards of our relationships. And we are bad stewards who will be held accountable for our bad stewardship if we never faithfully seek God to warn our neighbors and our family and our friends of the coming judgment. Now, we've seen Paul's commitment. We've seen Paul's change. This takes us to point number three, Paul's charge. Paul's charge. Jesus gave Paul a charge. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, Jesus spoke directly to Paul. Jesus is the Lord, speaking to Paul and charging Paul to keep on speaking, to not be silent. Now, this means that Paul was tempted to stop speaking and to be silent. And this temptation is understandable. Everywhere Paul went and preached, persecution struck him, right? Like a viper striking a bare leg. Persecution bit Paul wherever he went. We saw it in Pisidian Antioch so many months ago when crowds gathered to hear the gospel. Many members of the synagogue there mocked him and reviled him. Acts 13, 45 got so bad he had to flee for his life from the city. They tried to stone him in Iconium, Acts 14, 5. So he ran off to Lystra. You don't need to always stay and be stoned. <laughs> Sometimes godly to run. He ran to Lystra. The mob caught up to him in Lystra, and they did stone him, leaving him for dead, Acts 14:19. Now, in Philippi, Right about the time the gospel started taking root in that city, they beat Paul, they imprisoned him, Acts 16:22, and then another mob eventually chased him out of Thessalonica, and it, it infuriated them to see the growth of Christianity in that city, so they harassed him, and they chased him all the way to Berea, Acts 17:13. And of course, that's how Paul ended up fleeing to Athens. Have you ever heard about someone who uh, testifies against a really dangerous criminal and therefore having testified against like the mob, he has to go into hiding and get a new name in you know, some small town out in the boondocks, always looking over his shoulder, always wondering if the mob boss is gonna find out where he is and, and uh, take him out? Well, Paul didn't hide his identity. Uh, he didn't stop preaching. But he knew that his life was in jeopardy. And he must have been tempted to be quiet. There must have been some mornings Paul wanted to stay in bed or just, I just want to make tents today. I don't want to talk to anybody. When he wrote the Corinthians, he explained his state of mind. All right, so uh, you can turn right in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to see uh, what Paul wrote to this church uh, later as he described to them what it was like when he visited them. First Corinthians chapter two, verse one, he says, And I, when I came to you, now you is the church in Corinth. When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And notice what he says in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These are the words of a man who knew his days were numbered. These are the words of a man who knew what it's like to sort of be brought to the end of yourself, who knew what it was like to basically have no strength in and of himself and to quite literally be fearing for his life and wanting to be silent. And as the gospel gained traction in Corinth, the the temptation to retreat must have grown even stronger He must have felt that he was in even more danger. And so he lived in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That doesn't sound very much like a lion. And Jesus comes to him in his weakness and in his fear and in his trembling. And Jesus gives Paul this charge. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. Do not be silent. brothers and sisters, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus gives Paul three reasons not to be afraid. See which one applies to you. I'm going to take them in reverse order. First, many of God's elect are in Corinth. Look at the end of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. I have many in the city who are my people. Now, this is very early on in Paul's time in Corinth. There were not yet many believers, but Jesus tells him, Don't be afraid. I have many in the city who are my people. Paul can carry on, go about gospel ministry in Corinth with the confidence that many, many people whom God chose before the foundation of the world are going to be saved. They are God's elect. There are many, many people in Corinth who will not bow to Baal, he's saying. Many. They will hear the gospel, they will respond positively, they will repent, they will believe. And so, this is just amazing, but the doctrine of election or predestination did not hinder evangelism in Corinth, but it propelled it. It promoted it. The more aware Paul was of this doctrine of election, that God has his people in his city, the more evangelistic, the braver Paul is going to be, recognizing that he's freed up to share. God has people there. Some will mock, but Jesus promises that many will come to saving faith. Now, admittedly, we have not received such a direct word about Atlanta. No, we, just, we we don't have something exactly like that. But I think it's safe and wise even to assume that God has chosen many of our neighbors in this great city to know Him and to love Him. And our business is to plant and to water gospel seeds, and it's up to God to give the growth. Let Him worry about election. Let's you and I just remember, hey, God's elector out there. Let's boldly share the gospel with them, persuading them to come to Christ and leave the rest to Him. Now, the second reason Paul should not be afraid is because nothing will harm him in Corinth. Look at the middle of verse 10. No one will attack you to harm you. Now, can you imagine how thankful and relieved Paul must have been to have gotten this news? All right, too good to be true. Like, this would have been an opportunity for Paul to exercise faith. I mean, really, God? I've been stoned. I've been beaten. Like, everywhere I've gone, people have literally hurt my body. And now you're promising that I'm, I'm not going to be harmed That's exactly what Jesus promised. And uh, I don't know if the Holy Spirit ever, like, writes things to make us laugh, but I can't help but chuckle when verse 11 says, he remained there for 18 months. Like, I'd stay too, you know? Many people come to faith, no one's gonna harm you. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) Like, I'm retiring. Now, third and finally, but really the most important reason, Paul should not be afraid because Christ is with him. Verse 10, for I am with you. And this, as you well know, isn't just a promise for Paul. It's for every single Christian. It's the promise we find at the end of the Great Commission. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ's presence with the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit is not up for dispute. This is a biblical fact, a spiritual reality. Now, kids, kids, you can understand this. Maybe you once, I'm not gonna ask you to admit, kids, in the presence of your parents that, well, your parents will actually know if this really happened, but I'm not gonna ask you to admit this to anybody else, right, but maybe, just maybe, once in your life, you woke up in the middle of the night and it was really dark and your nightlight burned out and you heard something under your bed and you got really creeped out and you were, you were afraid. And then you remembered, aha, there are big people in the room next door and you cried out and maybe a mom or maybe a dad went into your room, sat on your bed and waited for you to fall asleep. In a similar way, Jesus says he's with his people. Adults, I don't know if you read this past week about a a man by the name of Jack Eckles. His wife, Jerry, has Alzheimer's, and uh, Jack really needed to put her into a home where she could get the kind of care that he couldn't give her. She's 91, he's 93. On March 12th, the, the nursing home, did what most nursing homes did in march they shut their doors to any visitors and that meant that her husband was shut out of her life well jack obviously being a very persuasive man convinced the nursing home on march 13th to rent him a room and so he moved in to the nursing home on march 13th it was a tiny room uh, with a window that opened onto a brick wall And because of the the danger of COVID-19, he really wasn't allowed to roam around. The dining hall was shut. And so from March until now, basically the only thing he could do was make a beeline to her room, feed her, and then leave. And go back to his room alone, which is what he's now been doing for five months. And he said that he's not going to leave the nursing home until the nursing home, allows visitors to come in on a daily basis. Now, when he was asked why he did this, Jack said, rather matter-of-factly, we're married. I want to be with her. She took care of me for 70 years, and now it's my turn. Now, I don't want you to think about marriage. Married people, single people, don't think about marriage right now. That's not the point. Think about Jesus. The promise that Jesus makes, that he made, is so much richer. Jack is with his wife because he says she served him 70 years. I know it's because he loves her. That's what he said. Hey, she served me 70 years. This is the least I can do. So true. But Christ is with us because he died for us when we were still sinners. How much better is that? Christian, when you are overcome by loneliness or anxiety by depression, by fear, the word of God says, don't be afraid. Christ is with you. I love that it doesn't just say, don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid, shut up. Don't be afraid, which I take to be a command. Christ is with you, which I take to be a comfort. He's with you. He's in you. You're in him. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Christ isn't just a parent sitting on the side of your bed. He's not just a husband walking into your room. Christ, he is your room. He's your home. He's your security. He's everything to you, and he's everything for you. This world is is hard, and I recognize when I say this world is hard, uh, again, I'm preaching the gospel without fear of being stoned. I don't want to overdo it. But if you're breathing, something comes to your mind when I say, this world is hard. It's not easy. We've, we've got no promise we won't be harmed, but we do have the promise that sin will no longer be our master. We are free. Christians are free from having to prove themselves to God or to anyone else. Christ is with us all the time. Martin Luther, who knew something about anxiety, took great comfort in this thought. When he uh, preached a series of sermons on Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Martin Luther reflected on these verses. And here's what he said. He said, abiding and living in me, Christ removes all the evils that torment and afflict me. This attachment to him to Christ causes me to be liberated from the terror of the law and of sin, pulled out of my own skin and transferred into Christ and into his kingdom, because he lives in me, whatever grace, righteousness, Life, peace, and salvation there is in me is all Christ's. It's all Christ's. Nevertheless, it is mine as well by the cementing and attaching that are through faith. You got to believe that Paul understood that 10 times over when Jesus said, don't be afraid, I am with you. I've died for you. I've been raised for you. I filled with my Holy Spirit. You may be without Paul and without Silas and Timothy for a season, but I'm with you. And I've always been with you and I'll always be with you. So the result is don't be afraid. Christ is with you. When grace and righteousness and peace and love are evident in your lives, with all the other pieces of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Christ is with you. When you find yourself comforted by the word of God, have you ever found yourself comforted by the word of God? The way nothing else can comfort you, Christ is with you. When the body of Christ, even in its scatteredness, when the body of Christ surrounds you with the love, a kind of love that the world knows nothing of, Christ is with you. Jesse, that's what the gospel is going to produce in Fujairah, right? A, 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 A church that lives out the cross with a kind of love that Islam knows nothing of. And that's what you, if they vote yes, get to go share. When you are meditating on scripture and you know deeply in your heart of hearts that Christ is your Christ, That the Lord is your Lord. That they can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. When you know that, you know Christ is with you. So, Christian, you cannot remove Christ from your life any more than you can remove green from a leaf or wet from water. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. The presence of Christ in your life means that you are never alone and never poor and never never truly in danger. And I would say this as boldly to one of the 100,000 people who have just had to evacuate from their homes because a wildfire is raging in Sonoma County, California. The Christian is never truly in danger. Because 80 years of life is a pittance compared to 80 billion years of eternity. The Christian is never truly in danger. Psalm 56, 3 through 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So, we've seen Paul's commitment. We've seen his Change. We've seen his charge. That leaves us with just one more point, God's kindness. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, our passage ends with God kindly going to work protecting Paul. Verses 12 through 17 are really a fulfillment of the promises Jesus made in verse 10. Gallio was governor of the Roman province of Achaia, which had Corinth as its capital. By the way, for those of you who are history buffs, uh, his younger brother, Gallio's younger brother, is the famous philosopher Seneca, who was once the tutor of the young Nero, who went on to become the Roman emperor. Also, we know from archeological evidence that Gallio served as proconsul of Achaea in AD 51 or 52. So basically, in historically, we know exactly when this particular event took place. Now, after 18 years of very fruitful ministry in Corinth, a crowd from the synagogue had finally had enough, and so they grab Paul. They don't harm him. They grab him, they bring him before Gallio, and they accuse the apostle of treason against the Roman Empire. Because at this point, they think this is the best way for them to get Paul in trouble, was to accuse him of basically advocating treason. Now. Before Paul can even defend himself, I love it, he can't even open his mouth. And you know, Paul could open his mouth. But before Paul could even open his mouth, Galileo dismisses the case outright. He says, look, this is a Jewish argument. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't care what you're talking about. Take it to the streets. He boots them out of the tribunal. He says it's none of his his business. He sends them away. There's some question about what happened next. It revolves around who they refers to in verse 17. Is it a Gentile crowd that beat up on the Jews after he booted them out of the tribunal? Or, look at verse 17, is it a Jewish crowd upset with Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, who maybe they thought didn't put up a good attack against Paul before Gallio, and so they beat up their own? I don't know for sure. I would just note that if the name Sosthenes rings a bell, Maybe it's because you named one of your boys Sosthenes. I don't know. But maybe, if it's not because you named a child Sosthenes, it's because you remember 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Not 100% sure it's the same Sosthenes. I think it's likely. Do you see God's kindness? God protected Paul just as he promised in verse 10. That's not all. God protected the church, giving her Paul to guide her, to teach her, to shepherd her for many more days. Not only that, God protected the gospel because the moment Gallio said, I will not hear your attack against this man. This is a inner Jewish dispute. The moment Gallio said that a proconsul, effectively a governor within the Roman Empire, his word became law in other surrounding regions. And for about 10 to 12 years, Christianity was protected because of this word of Gallio in Corinth. When the Roman Empire finally caught wind of what exactly Christianity was and what it meant and how different it was from Judaism, well, by that time it was too late. The fire of Christianity was burning so hot that not even the Roman Empire could put it out. I know that Acts is called Acts of the Apostles. But it's not really about Paul or Peter or James. It's about God. This is a book about the acts of God protecting his people, his gospel, his name. It's a chronicle of of Jesus spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And in his sovereign, and here's the wacky thing, in his sovereign kindness, God uses Paul a man with weaknesses and fears like the rest of us. God used Paul to turn the world upside down. Each and every one of us in this room are simply sinners depending upon the Lord to guide us and to protect us. He is God. We are not. If you want to be a Christian, truly a Christian, you need to acknowledge this. You need to admit this, admit your weakness, confess your sin, throw yourself upon God's mercy. Recognize you have no hope in your own heart to make anything of your life. The only life that means anything is a life that acknowledges not only that you've been created by God, but you were created by God for a purpose, to worship him. And the only way to worship him is to confess your sin, and believe that Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died the death that you deserve to die. If you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, I'd invite you, if you are watching us online, to reach out to me. But if you're in the building, to see me at the door after the service and let me help you understand the next steps to becoming a Christian. Brothers and sisters, you are dependent upon the Lord to guide you and to protect you, you can trust that he will be encouraged because the first promise made to Paul in Acts 18.10 is a promise for you to embrace. Christ is with you from now on and forevermore. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We come to you as a humble people, a people dependent upon your grace and upon your mercy. And we ask you to help us wrestle with the things we've heard today, whether it's the responsibility that believers have to make Christ known, lest the blood of others be on our heads, whether it's the need to take more comfort in the presence of Christ than we ever have before. We ask that your Holy Spirit would not leave us unaffected by Acts 18. And we pray this all.